look at this passage to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I would like to read verses 1 to 11. Verses 15, 1 to 11, then we'll look at our passage in verses 57 and 58. This is an important backdrop as we step into Corinthians that Paul keeps hounding the gospel. The gospel is the key to everything. The gospel is God's work and what he's done in our lives. And he wants them to be reminded that what God has done in you, what God has done through you, that God's going to work through you for his glory. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 11. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than, all of, than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Then verses 57 and 58, well, 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, be in, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you for such an awesome passage that just frames out the gospel, frames out that nothing that is done for you is in vain. And God, it's all because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, Father, may we be encouraged as we stand some two weeks into a new year. But, Father, as we look at what is before us, may we be determined to put our hands to the plow and to labor in your mission field, in your ministry, in the work of the Lord. For, God, we understand that our work is never in vain when it's done for you. I pray in Christ's name, amen. When Paul arrived at Corinth, as we read in that passage in, in Acts chapter um, 18, and when he arrived in Corinth as a tent maker, um, he's, or I should say he set up shop as a tent maker, and he met Aquila and Priscilla, and he stayed with them. And the account shows us that he's visiting the synagogue, and he's going there every, every Sabbath, but they're trying to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. But there is a group that rises up, and they oppose him. And it says in verse 6 in Acts 18 that he shook out his garment, kind of akin to um, shaking the dust off of your feet. And so Paul changes his strategy now. He goes to the house next door to the synagogue, and God just rips open the doors and gives him an incredible breakthrough here, right next door to the synagogue. Um, the gospel exploded onto the scene, and many lives were changed, as we saw in verses 7 and 8. In fact, God told him, don't be afraid, I have many people here in this city. So Paul stayed for one and a half years, 
and God used him mightily. When Paul left, Apollos came in and continued to teach the word of God and minister to the people. Now, as we land here in our, in our letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, it's some four years later from Acts chapter 18. And these four years show us that the church is a mess. It's a mess. Um, as you read this letter and look at it, this church is marked by division. It's marked by lawsuits. It's marked by immorality. It's marked by um, favoritism. It's marked by doctrinal confusion. It's marked by all of these messes and con- conflicts that's happening. Um, I'm not sure if we would have blamed Paul if he would have written a letter to them and says, I'm really upset with your division, your lawsuits, your morality, and all that's going on. You know what? I'm done with you. I've invested a year and a half. See you later. What do you want to finish with? Alligator? No. <laughs> you know, I'm done with you. Finito. But he doesn't write that kind of a letter. In fact, we're, we're pretty amazed at his words. He writes in chapter 1, verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you. To this troubled church. It's so encouraging and so upbeat. In fact, then a little bit later, he reminds them of God's work amongst them. And he says, you know, look at how, who God chose that you were not some of these high-educated, influential people. Look at what you were that God saved you. Then the rest of the letter is just a letter of endearment, a letter of encouragement, a letter of victory. Yeah, he's scolding them, but always lovingly, always caringly as he points them. He doesn't shame them. He doesn't try to persuade them to action by some empty words of promise or encouragement. He's not trying to twist their arm in any manner. Rather, he speaks from the platform. You know what the platform is? Of the amazing grace of God. He never gets away from the gospel. He begins this letter, chapter 1, with the stunning words speaking of God's grace to them. Then as it hits this crescendo in chapter 15, he speaks again of the gospel. And he says it's not in vain in chapter 15, verse 2. Then he hits it's not in vain in verse 58. So he is just screaming out of what God has done in their lives, and he's calling them that nothing is done in vain, even though all of these things that I've just talked about, these hard subjects, that God's work in you, that you are victors that what God has done is not in vain. You know, when Paul knew his time in Corinth and Paul understood all that was going on, he realizes that God has a work for them. And he stuck to and realized that God was going to accomplish a great task. I just read three books on the American Revolution. Um, I think I was motivated with Washington's crossing on December 25th, so I read about the Assunpink Creek battle, then I got into 1776, and then into the Glorious Cause, which is like 750 pages, but I skimmed that. Um, but as I'm reading all of this account of the American Revolution, and I'm watching all this happening, and I'm listening to or reading the letters of General Washington or the Continental Congress, and all the words that are being transpired in their communication interaction, they wondered if their cause was really in vain. Washington puts right out there as he's writing to his nephew who's building Mount Vernon and continuing down in um, Virginia. He says, I'm not sure 
What's the outcome going to be? He's wondering if what they have done in vain. The men are starting to make other plans, the 59 or whatever signers there were, or the Declaration of Independence, plans of escaping because their lives would be pursued by the British as traitors. They're not sure they're going to win. And as you read this account of all of the, all of the hardship, continuous defeats on the battlefield, especially in the first couple of years, they were continuously losing but it was a war of attrition to keep hanging in there, hoping the British would tire out, which they did. Um, but all of the hardships on the battlefield, Washington doesn't have food to feed his soldiers. He doesn't have clothes to clothe them. We know of Valley Forge just 45 minutes away, how the soldiers in this winter of 77, 78, um, marched into there, and their feet are wrapped. They didn't even have shoes. So all of these um, difficulties, desertions, they get tired of home life, and they said, I'm just going to go home. Or enlistments would be up after the year. Here the British are feeling this great army, the greatest army arguably in the world at that time. And here are the militia or the continental army. Their, their enrollment is up after a year, and they're counting down the time. They're out of here. That's really why the Battle of Trenton and Princeton happened before enlistments were up. So we look at all of this. He doesn't know what the outcome is going to be. But Paul, as he writes this letter to the Corinthians, he knew that his work was not in vain. He knew that victory was before them. He knew what the outcome would be. He knew by the grace of God. And that's how this whole chapter is is framed in verse 52. I mean, in in chapter 15, verse 2 with the word vain. And then in chapter um, 15, verse 58, uh, verse vain. Vain, it's, it's framed with vain that it's not in vain in what we have done. And at the heart of all of this framework is the resurrection of Christ and the difference that it makes. So if I were to come up with a big idea, it would be your work for God is never in vain because of God's work in you. Your work is not in vain because of what God has done in you. And we see that, that, that framework in the gospel. This is what God did for you. And then he ends with, it's not in vain. So I have two simple points. The work of God in you, or parenthesis, the great thanksgiving. And then point two, the work, um, God's work through you, the great exhortation in verse 58. Let's start in verse 57. But thanks be to God. You ever talk with people and they're saying something really nice and flowery and but you could tell by the tone that there's that word coming, but. But, (laughs) well, Paul gives a but here, but it's a glorious but. In verse 57, but thanks. Well, what did he just look at? He's spoken in verse 56 in the greater context, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. So he's talked about the forces of sin, the forces of death, where the penalty of, of the law is, of sin, there is no forgiveness. If there is a person even here tonight, if you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, you stand on the, on the precipice of eternal separation from God. There can be forgiveness once our life is, is, is finished. Because God has offered a price and a way to forgive you through the blood of Jesus Christ. But he's talking to the Corinthians here, these that he's convinced of, the, of God's work in them, as he said in chapter 1. 
and they have a different condition. They don't stand under the penalty of the law. Hebrews 9, it's appointed unto man who wants to die, but after this, the judgment. They're not under that any longer. They have experienced God's amazing grace. So he writes to them and gives this incredible 15th chapter, the climax, and he changes. But thanks be to God. He turns the attention from victory over sin, over death, over the grave, and he says, but, but thanks be to God. Uh, in the Greek, the first letters, the first words, it really reads, but to God. God is the emphasis. God is right up front. Before even thanks is being given to him, I want God to be the subject. He's the, he's the object here. But thanks be to God. And he's focusing on, but to God, thanks. God is the one who's our liberator. God is the one who has set us free. God is the one that's our gracious, almighty God. It really ties in, I think, pretty well this thought with what we heard this morning. How majestic is your name. Verse 1 of Psalm 8, verse 9, how majestic is your name. And the whole framework in the beginning is who we are, our identity, and what Christ has done. The focus is on God. How majestic, how great. So, but to God, to, to God, to God be thanks. So he's drawing them in and he's pointing them to God. God is the starting point and God is the ending point. God is our great liberator. Victory comes to the child of God, not through what we have done, not through our efforts, not through our works, not through what we can attempt to, to accomplish, but through the power of, of God, the power of the gospel. So he's reminding them of that. But thanks be to God. He talked about the gospel earlier. Thanks be to God. This word thanks is often translated as the Greek word charis, translated grace. So it's kind of cool, the interchange grace or thanks. So he's saying thanks be to God. Grace really is more of the idea of favor, goodwill. But here the, the, the writer is focusing on thanks to God. Um, may we never get over our thanksgiving to God. And Paul often uses charis in giving thanks to God, praise to God, grace to God for what he has done. You see, God's work in you, 57, God's work through you, will not get to the through if we forget the in. Okay? Um, we're not going to be able to do great things for God if we forget what he's done for us. We're not going to have that motivation It probably will shock you, but I think I probably gave my parents a run for their money when I was a kid. And I can remember looking in the mirror once and saying, Dave, why can't you change and just crying? Because I thought of the love and the sweetness of my parents and how they sacrificed and hard workers doing all that they did for me. I needed to be reminded of that continually to change my conduct. But really the greater motivation Trumping that is to remember as a Christian teen what Christ has done for me, and that's my motivation. And that's what Paul is doing there, doing here. He wants to give thanks to God. He wants God to be the object of, of, of our thanks. We want God to be the object of, of all that, that, that we give to him. So as the object of God's grace, God ought to be the object of our gratitude. And Paul is driving that point home and wanting to emphasize that. So he says, but thanks be to God 
Then he says, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, Corinthians, as you look on your shelves and you see the lawsuits that you're filing with your neighbors, as you walk by and have these divisions, as you're not sharing these meals with these people, as you're involved in this immorality, you're tolerating this kind of stuff in the church, he says, who gives us the victory, you're victors. <laughs> he says, you, you church, you're victors. And he's focusing on who they are. You know, Paul uses the word victory twice in 54 and 55, and then the third time here in 57. He, and it's only three times, by the way, that it's all in the whole book. And here is victory, victory, victory. He wants this troubled church to know that you're victors. Who are you? Your identity. You are victors. You may look not real pretty, Corinthian church, but you're victors. He's driving home who they are in Christ. This is a military term. It's an athletic term. It's a metaphor. It's a battle term. And he's calling them to, to this, this your, your victors, or as we heard a couple weeks ago on a Wednesday, it's that Greek word Nike. From, Nike comes from it. Um, your victors in Christ. Your identity. Who you are as a child of God. Who you are as a believer. He wants them to be reminded of their identity. He wants them to be reminded of what God has done for them. In a letter that he wrote to the Romans, Paul said, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Shall God that justifies? In Romans chapter 8, 33 and 34. But he wants to remind them that Christ has destroyed, Christ has crushed, Christ has defeated Satan. And when we put our faith and trust in Christ, that victory becomes ours and we're identified with him. We died to the penalty of sin. We have risen in the new life in Christ. And that relationship causes us to be victors, causes us to be victorious. Is this victory a future victory only? Because when it looks at when we die, we'll have victory over the sin, over the grave, over death. Is that just something in the future? How do we know that it could be in the present? Well, look what he says. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory. He's speaking. He doesn't say it, he will give us. He's using a present tense. He gives us the victory right now. So our position, our identity as victors in Christ, we are going to be victorious in the future over sin, over death, over the grave, but that is to have a direct correlation and impact right now in how we live. Because of the future reality, because of the present identity in Christ, it is to impact how we live. So he's using a present tense who gives us the victory it's right now. It's victorious life that we can have now over sin. In another letter that he wrote to the Romans, he talks about being the new man, new man in Christ, that the new man, the old man has been crucified. The new man has been given to us. The old man's not hanging around any longer. Somebody's crucified isn't living. But the flesh is still alive. But the new man, the new creation that we have in our soul, our connection with God, we can be victorious over sin. So why aren't we? Because we choose to live sometimes in the flesh. But our identity is that we're victors. 
we can say no to sin because of the Spirit of God living in us. So he wants them to understand that we can be victors now. Again, this word victor is a, is a sweet identity term. It's a term that's reminding us of what God has done in our lives. This is to have an impact how we now live victorious over sin, living a selfless life for the glory of God. Let me ask you a question. If you had somebody do a, a kind deed for you, um, let's say you were sick for a week and they brought you a meal, what would be your response? You'd be thankful? Thank you. You might even write them a, a nice card. Say, thank you for the meal. It was delicious. Thank you so much. That was very sweet of you. And we made it in the last two meals. But let's change it up. Let's say that you're chatting with your neighbor one night, one evening, and it's about 7 o'clock, and you're talking. Say, man, I have to catch a flight at 4.30. I'm exhausted. I'm going to bed at 8 o'clock and putting the kids to bed early. We're, we're hitting the... And so he knows that you're asleep early. And he goes out at 11 o'clock, and he happens to look across the street. He's out walking his dog, looks across the street, and sees flames coming up from your attic through your roof. He quickly drops the dog, grabs his cell phone out, runs across the street. He's calling 911, calls them. He gets to your door with all his weight. He smashes into your door after ringing the doorbell and had to hit it a second time. Eventually, he stumbles into your home, and it's filling with smoke. And he's screaming at the top of his lungs to you. And you stagger out, smoke-filled, coughing, struggling. He rushes up the stairs after you have grabbed the children. And he helps all of you get out safely. All of you are out. He stumbles on the front lawn because he was in there longer than he should have been. And the 911 medics arrive. They take him. He has some serious damage. I don't know what. You could ask H, and she's the nurse. Uh, but there's situations going on. He has a rehab for, for, let's say, a month. And he struggled, but he finally gets home. Now, how will you view him? Will you write him a nice little card? Thank you for saving my family. That was very nice of you. Is that our attitude? I mean, wouldn't you, like, look at him every day, almost want to give him a hug for saving you? Wouldn't you every day when you see him have a tear swell up in your eye? He saved my family. Wouldn't you view him, anything that I can do for you, whatever you want me to do? You see, that's the attitude here that Paul is, is reminding the Corinthians in their position, that they have been saved from the pit of hell for all of eternity, and the gospel has changed their lives, and they are now children of God. They are victors. They have a new identity. See, thanksgiving ought to lead to Thanks living. See, it's not just enough God, thanks, boom, boom, that's awesome, but thanks be to God. Okay, high five, we're out of here. Um, but he's now about to change it based on all that God has done for you, based on God's work in you, based on you being victorious, based on us giving God thanks, based on the identity that we have. He now talks about the work of God through them, or we go from the great thanksgiving to the great exhortation. So we look in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Therefore, based on all of the realities he has just covered, 
based on all of the realities of, of verse 57, but 54 to 57, verses 1 through 57, really the whole book. But therefore, based on all that God has done, based on the reality of the transformation that has happened to you, O child of God, that our corruptible mortal bodies have been, have been changed into incorruptible, immortal bodies. Based on the reality of the defeat of death, the reality of the defeat of the grave, that we're victors over that, our future resurrection, based on the identity of who we are, therefore, all of this is huddled together, therefore, what should be our response? That question that Ezekiel asked, and Francis Schaeffer would eventually write a book, How Should We Then Live? How should we then live in light of this? How should we live in light of these truths? Therefore, he says, therefore be ye steadfast, immovable. What should be our response? Duty should follow doctrine or Practice should follow position. I now should live a certain way based on what God has done in my life. You know, if Jesus had never risen from the dead, we would never have heard of the carpenter from Nazareth. If Jesus never rose from the dead, everything goes into oblivion. Everything is nothingness. Everything changes. Our present pursuits, our present life, present desire, everything we do. But because of the reality of the resurrection, because Christ is real, based on what he has done, Paul tells us, be steadfast. Be steadfast. You see this word be in verse 58? Look back up to verse 54. You see in the ESV, shall come to pass... You see that? Shall come to pass in 54 and 58b. It's the same Greek word, genomai. It means to become. One is in the future tense, and one is a command in the present tense. So he's, he's framing it. He says, verse 54, shall come to pass based on what's going to happen in the future. This is what's coming to us because of what God has done for us. This is now how we should live. He's giving a command, be steadfast, be firm. You know, steadfast is a settled conviction based upon an objective reality. Let me say that again. Steadfast is, is, a, is a conviction based on an objective reality. We have this conviction, and the objective reality is a resurrection of Christ and what he has done in my life. So based on who Christ is and his resurrection and my salvation, I have this settled conviction. I am standing firm. I am standing steadfast. I can't be moved. I can't be changed. And that's what Paul is saying. The objective reality is who Christ is and what he has done. The resurrection of Christ is the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of, of all that we believe, and we know that. But it's good for us to speak that to, to ourselves each day. It's good for us to be reminded of that. 
of verse, verse 1 when Paul says, uh, speaks of the gospel I preached to you, and then verses 3 and 4, that Christ died for our sins and that he was buried, he rose again the third day. Paul's conviction of that truth motivated him in how he lived and how he was going to respond. The gospel, the gospel is not the ABC of the Christian life, right? We get that? The gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The gospel is not just for the beginning. The gospel is for every day of my life. Every day I have to speak it. Uh, a, a phrase that Dennis and I often say in class, we don't want to live in the shadow. We want, to, we want to live in the shadow of the cross and the empty tomb. Live in the shadow of the cross and the empty tomb. Keep reminding ourselves of the gospel. Keep remembering what Christ has done for us. I need the gospel in the morning when I first wake up. I need it at noon. I need it in the evening. And when I, I need it when I retire. I need the gospel to speak to myself when somebody irritates me. And it's probably more my fault than theirs. Or when I'm tempted to complain. Or I'm tempted to gossip. Or I'm tempted to get off track. Or I'm te- tempted to do things that aren't Christ-honoring. I need the gospel. It reminds me of who Christ is and what he has done. So he's speaking to them. Be steadfast. And it's based on this objective reality of Christ dying, rising again, and who you are in Christ. He says, be steadfast. The conviction of our, of our steadfastness is a resurrection of Christ. You know, we're not just to be people that are... Erica comes up to me, and apparently the word cool is quite an, an old word. You're going to hate me for this one, too. Fuddy-duddies. You ever hear of fuddy-duddies, Erica? <laughs> um, how many of you older people are familiar with the phrase fuddy-duddies? Okay, I feel good then. Um, you know, we don't want to just be fuddy-duddies that we're stuck in the mud. We just say, no, 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 you can't do that, no, no, because I want to say no, because I'm brought up no. I want you to look at this, this um, commercial of saying no. I'd like to redeem my credit card miles to Miami. No, blacked out. Ooh, you sound strong. Please? No. Just for me. Okay. The answer's always no. Go from no to no hassle with Capital One No Hassle Rewards. There are no blackout dates on any airline, anytime. Should have worked at Capital One. What's in your wall? The answer isn't always no because we just want to say no. The answer isn't always no because that's our tradition and we're conservative and, you know, we always get dressed up or we, well, no, I, that, don't go there. <laughs> um, this, is the, this is the way we do things or our parents brought, we want to say no if it's biblically based truth or we'll say yes if it's biblically based truth. We're going to be steadfast on the reality, not because that's what company policy is, but it's what God's policy is if we need to be. So that's what he's calling them to be steadfast, this steadfast reality of who we are. Now he moves on in light of that, be steadfast on what Christ has risen from the dead and your reality and your connection in him. Now be immovable. He says being ones that are just immovable. He recognized that the Corinthians, as we do, face many challenges in life. 
Um, the culture is just screaming every which way. They're screaming with abortion, homosexuality, transgender, and it's, I listened to, to even Lawrence and Pastor bringing up different agendas in our culture. My head spins on the wickedness and perversity of our world where we're going. But God calls us to be immovable. God calls us to be firm, to be planted, to not be influenced. You know, Paul's day, or the Corinthians, is not really much different of what we're facing. The Corinthians, and they're one, one of their many gods that they had is Aphrodite, the god of love, the god of pleasure. In fact, many well-known Corinthians would refer to um, Corinth, or I should say the prostitutes. There were many prostitutes with Aphrodite connection and temple worship. There were so many in, in, um, in Corinth that the well-known Greeks would refer to them as the prostitutes just as Corinthians. Oh, that's a Corinthian. That's a prostitute. Just the immorality, the wickedness of their society. But Paul tells them, be steadfast. Don't let the filth of the, church, the world get into the church. May we stand firm. May we stand with biblical conviction. Not because, no, 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 we want to be fuddy-duddies but because we have a conviction, we have a morality, we have high standards based on God's truth, God's word. So he calls them and he tells them, be ye steadfast. Again, a reference to the American Revolution. Um, all that was happening during those seven years is hardly anything steadfast. I'm continually reading of, of Washington and his struggles and reading the journals he continually begged Continental Congress, give me more of an army, give me more men, because men were always deserting. They would, get a, they would get a letter from back home, and their wife would miss them, or it was harvest time, or it was planting time. So they would just, here they are on this great American battlefield, just up and leave, travel 100 miles, go back home and harvest the field. I mean, they're leaving, desertions. But we're called here to be immovable, to be firm, to be planted firm. As they would see the enemy coming on the battlefield. And they wore, I think, red to intimidate purposely. So you couldn't miss them. And they had their bayonets fastened if they were within 100 yards. And the bayonets would glisten in the sun. And the militia who weren't used to battle would see the British redcoats marching stock right towards them. They would drop their weapons, their gear, and just high gear out of there. But we're not to be that way when we see the enemy coming. We're to stand firm, to be immovable. So he's calling on the Corinthians, be immovable. Stand firm because we're victors already. We're not on a battlefield that we're going to lose. We're not, we're not the defeated. We are victorious. And he's writing to a church that's kind of a mess in Corinth. But he says, you're victors. You can be victorious. Maybe we should have sang the, sang the song, Dare to Be a Daniel. Um, it really ties in to this theme. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. Dare to make it known. To be a man like Daniel, no matter what the world says, no matter what others do, I stand and stand on this purpose. I'm resolved to live for God. And that's what Paul is calling the Corinthians to be resolved, to be steadfast, to be immovable. And he says, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Always. You know, it's not sometimes. 
It's not perchance that will abound. But Paul says, in light of all that God has done, we will always be abounding in the work of the Lord. I mean, to, to have a fixed number and to exceed it, to blow beyond that. He says, if we're faithful to God, if we're immovable, we're steadfast, this is the reality of what will happen. We will always abound in the work of the Lord. We'll be involved in the, in the gospel. We'll be involved in, in the glorious truth. And the changes that God will bring about will be for his glory if we're just found faithful um, to him. You know, Paul is telling them that you could abound in all that you do if it's done in the work of the Lord, if we're found faithful to God. In fact, it's kind of interesting. He gives this exhortation or this command in the next chapter, the next verse, 16, 1 to 4, he starts talking about giving and collecting of the saints. So he's calling them to task. We're to abandon the work of the Lord. We're to do God's work. And here's an area where you can abound. You can be found faithful. But let's ask the question, what is the work of the Lord? Um, abounding. We, I think each one of us want to, want to abound in God's work. I think if we were to look at 24 ahead of us, God, I, at the end of 24, I want to be said of me that I've abounded in your work, that I've been used of you, that I've, by your, by your grace, God has made a difference for your kingdom. But what is the work of the Lord? I think minimally, if we were to say it minimally, and then we'll maybe more exactly tie it in, it ought to be an accurate picture of what Christ is like working through us. An accurate picture of Jesus Christ towards the world. What is my attitude? What is my conduct? What is my actions? How do I care for my neighbor? How do I speak to my coworker? How do I care for family members when there's a disagreement? How do I view people that don't know Christ as their Savior? How do I speak? How do I work at work? All of this minimally is that we live as Christ would live in the world. So the work of the Lord is just be Christ in the world. But I think we look even more exactly, and Paul uses the word labor, knowing that you're labor. When Paul uses this word labor, he's always referring to the ministry of the gospel, specifically sharing the gospel, specifically being evangelizers, being individuals that are, that are, that are gospelizers, spreading God's truth, God's word around. So it's Christ impacting people, and opportunities when they come about to share the gospel directly with people. He's calling on them to labor. He's calling on them to be involved. He's calling on them to abound. I want to drive home application in our last five, maybe a couple minutes extra here. But I want to look at the word abounding in verse 58 and in verse 10. You see the word in verse 10, harder? I worked harder than any of them. And here he says abounding. It's a neat connection when we see it's the same Greek word. Paul says that I worked harder, and it's this Greek word abounding, and now he's calling on the Corinthians, you're to abandon the work of the Lord. What he's saying, I think, there is, yes, I worked hard. I was abounding in the work of the Lord, but so can you. Each one of us, as long as we're doing the work of the Lord, we will abound in God's, in God's work. We will abound in God's field. We will abound in God's ministry. God will bring a great um, harvest, a great um, fruit. God will advance his kingdom. We just be Christ. We just be witnesses. We just be what God calls us to be, involved in the work of the Lord. But let me ask, how, 
what does it look like in our lives? I think there's only one question, if I could put it this way, that we need to ask in light of this. Will I spend the balance of my life, my time, my energy, my finances in the work of the Lord? Will I spend my efforts doing his work? Will I strive to be abounding in the work of the Lord? And many of us in this room have more behind us than we have in front of us in our years. So we need to ask, will I spend my time living for the Lord? What does it look like abounding in the work of the Lord? Let me start with our younger people here. Not quite as young as you, buddy. <laughs> um, but let me, let's step in with our, maybe we'll start with our young people too and then we'll go up to our teens. But it would be looking abounding in the work of the Lord for a young person. I'm, I'm going to obey my parents. I'm going to be Christ since I've accepted Christ as my Savior. I'm going to obey, obey my parents and what they say and trust them and not argue, not complain, abounding in the work of the Lord. Maybe as a young person or a teen, it will be, I'm going to be a witness for Jesus Christ in my, in my school. My school has all of these weird thinking, these weird goals, things that are happening, but I'm going to stand true to God in my, in my witness and my testimony. I want them to know that I stand for him. Inviting teens perhaps to to a youth group and being able to share the gospel with them. Um, there's a, a man in my D group who heard of his um, neighbor um, sick and then eventually dying, and his adult son was living with him, and he was going through some health struggles. The adult son and he and his wife reached out to um, this adult son and, and um, sent him text messages and brought him over meals and stopped over and visit this neighbor often. See, that's abounding in the work of the Lord. I'm going to be Christ, and he's taking opportunities to share the gospel. Or perhaps your neighbor is sick. They ended up in the hospital, and they can't bring um, the firewood to their back porch. And you know that they enjoy a fire. I'm going to bring the firewood to their back porch. Or maybe it's they can't cut their lawn at summertime, and they had surgery, and you're going to cut the lawn for them and care for them and help them out. See, that's, that's abounding in the work of the Lord. It may not be preaching a message, but it's being Christ in the world. Or how about in your vocation? How do we use our vocations or your vocations in abounding for the work of the Lord? Maybe it's a, it's a nurse um, or a doctor, and as you're at the hospital and you're making rounds, you're caring for patients, and you pause a little bit longer to hear people, not being so fast, and I know you, you're overworked and you have to be fast, but you might even say to them, hey, I just want you to know I'm praying for you in your situation. That, just that little witness, and maybe it'll lead to further opportunities. Or maybe it's a, as, as you're at work, what I hear that a lot of people might be tempted to do, just you're so tired of all the stress and work, you go out to the car and just relax for 15, 20 minutes during lunch break, put on your music and just zone out. But maybe it's being intentional of staying, and I'm going to try to build into relationships with so-and-so. I'm going to listen to their stories. I'm going to listen to what's happening in their lives. I'm going to try to share the gospel with them, try to present Christ to them in, in different ways, and just by 
being a kind listening ear and listening to, to their struggles. And on and, other, on and on these opportunities come. I heard recently of a parts manager in our church um, staying after work. His work was done, um, but a new hiree, new guy hired, was behind in his work, and he just stayed, gave up his time to help him finish his day. You see, that's, that's Christ. That's Christ before, before the world. I'm going to help others out. I'm going to impact others for, for God. I, I'm going to abound in the kingdom of the Lord. And he says to know that our, our labor is not in vain. Can I take three more minutes? You're okay with that? Three more, four more minutes? We're good? Um, I should have been faster. Forgive me. Um, when I was at, at um, Baptist Bible College in 19... 19- I'm 80. I had gotten married in August and was working that summer. I'm on construction um, at BBC. Um, I guess it was 81. It was 81 working construction. So it was a, we were married in 80, but in 81. And so I'm working construction, and then the construction site was done, and they needed, I worked on maintenance, so they needed a guy to haul garbage. That was the most, to me, humiliating job. Like hauling garbage, you get this big old um, international harvester tractor and you back it up to the dumpster, you put the pin in, you haul it, crickety, making all this noise down. The point was, is I had the wrong view. I forgot that in that job that was embarrassing for a big shot like me, <laughs> um, that I could even in that job radiate Christ through the way I lived, through the way I acted and what I did. Could I could have eaten in that job, abandoned in the work of the Lord. So it's really the ministry. It's not just the preaching. And we look at our church, yeah, we have a diaper ministry. We have straightening up hymn books ministry. We have a vacuum ministry. We have a discipleship ministry. We have a choir ministry. We have a children's ministry. We have a visitation ministry. We have workday ministry. On and on it goes. But ministry is whenever I want much to be made of God by how I live and what I do, abounding in the work of the Lord because it's not in vain. We're victors. God has already won, and what he calls us just to be steadfast and movable, serve him, and what we do for him, we know the end of the story. We know the story of hope, that God wins. God is calling this tremendous group of people to himself. The promise is given to Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 3, that he's going to call, bring together this great group from all nations, bless all nations of the earth. And we see that written, fulfilled in Revelation chapter 5. We get to be part of that story. So we're just called to be steadfast, immovable. Remember what he has done for us, that our labor, our work, what we do is not in vain for the glory of God. God, we love you. We thank you for the privilege that we have to serve you. God, that our identity is in Christ, that we're victors, that we can even think of waking up one day and that we can make an eternal impact for your glory, that we can abound in the work of the Lord, that it doesn't have to be a bunch of nothingness, emptiness, temporalness, vanity, that because we belong to you, there is nothing that is vain. So God, use us for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.